Holy hair. Merciful men. Lightning bolts of... Uh, you know what? Let's just talk about the Silver Age. This is Radio Free Themyscira. The nation needs Wonder Woman. Paradise Island, home of the eternally young and beautiful Amazon. Wonder Woman. Athena, give me strength. Who knows she has the strength of Hercules. But the mascara. Who knows she has the wisdom of Athena. Princess Diana, the Wonder Woman. Hello, my ever-patient Amazon sisters and Manazon brothers, and welcome to this month's episode of Radio Free Themyscira. As uh, many of you surely noticed, there was no show dropped last month. I'm really sorry about that, guys. Not to go much into my own life, I hate when podcasters do that, but I just moved and it's uh, just taken a while to get my office slash recording studio back in working order. Uh, so thank you to everyone who messaged me on and posted on the Facebook page. Um, I'll do my best not to have such a long gap between episodes again. Uh, and also to make it up to you guys, next week I'm going to record a commentary of uh, some type of media of Wonder Woman. I was going to do an episode of the Linda Carter TV show, but then I realized that that's not really accessible unless you already possess the uh, DVD set that Warner Brothers released. Um, so we're probably going to end up doing an episode uh, that of the Justice League cartoon show. Uh, it's on Netflix and Hulu, I think, so everyone should be able to get a hold of it somehow. I'm just going to pick a uh, Wonder Woman-centric episode and do a commentary, just to make up for making you guys wait a whole month for an episode. <laughs> Alright, so today we're going to be talking about Wonder Woman's story during the Silver Age of comics. Now, before we go into that, I'm going to warn you, I'll be going to full fanboy mode for this, and uh, I, I may seem to be a bit negative, but let me assure you, it's all because my love of Wonder Woman that I enjoy picking apart the history of the character, even if that means calling out the less desirable parts of her history, which really is what the show's about, right? All right, let's jump in. So you remember Max Gaines? Uh, he was the publisher of Wonder Woman who had to deal with all the write-ins about the bondage that appeared in the comics back in the day? Well, whenever superheroes were going out of style, Gaines left the superhero comics business and went into publishing the kinds of comics he wanted to put out. Uh, like his favorite achievement, picture stories from the Bible. Uh, to do that, he created his own new comic company called Educational Comics, also known as EC Comics. Uh, some of you... Comics fans know where I'm going with this. <laughs> uh, but in 1947, Gaines died in a boating accident, and his son William took over the company. Uh, William changed the name of the company from Educational Comics to Entertaining Comics, and instead of publishing uh, Bible stories, his newly renamed company put out some of the most genre-defying horror and suspense stories of comics history. Some of you guys remember the Crypt Creeper from Tales of the Crypt? He actually got his start in EC Comics. But you remember when you were in elementary school and the whole class would be talking during your free time, but there was always that one kid who talked a little bit too loud and got the teacher's attention and just ended up ruining it for everyone? Well, EC kind of was that kid for the comics industry. Of course, EC wasn't the only ones doing horror comics at the time. In fact, with the decline of superhero comics, horror, romance, and westerns became the major themes for comics. But no one did suspense and gore quite like EC. 
This may have been why they were one of the first groups struck by a wave of backlash against comics culture in the mid-50s. An American psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham had written a book called Seduction of the Innocent, in which he calls out comics as causing a decay in the moral fiber of America's youth. Wortham claimed that he had studied the behavior of and interviewed juvenile delinquents around the country and found what they all had in common was that they had all read comic books. As far as superheroes were concerned, he claimed that Superman was more of a symbol of fascism than freedom, which wasn't necessarily untrue. Uh, the Golden Age Superman had a tendency to bully around his cast of characters, and he did often exhibit a might-makes-right kind of attitude. He claimed that many of the troubled youth that he had talked to were homosexuals, which society at the time still viewed as a disease, of course. And these young men had admitted to him that the relationship they saw in the Batman and Robin comics was actually enviable. This is also not necessarily wrong. I mean, when I was a teen boy, I would have loved to have met an attractive rich man who could run around having adventures with before retiring to a wealthy mansion. <laughs> so, fair enough. But his views on Wonder Woman are a bit off. He claimed that women superheroes were unnatural. He claimed that they were a bad example of women who were independent, did not have jobs, and clearly had to be lesbians. <laughs> Whatever, man. Uh, Congress even held a hearing to determine the effect that comics were having on society's youth. In response, the comic companies that were still around banded together and decided to form their own group to review and censor their materials. Better they govern themselves than have some outside board of review telling them what they could publish. These companies formed the Comics Code Authority. While Wonder Woman's stories did suffer under this more conservative mindset, her problems had really started before Wortham and his book were published. When William Moulton Marston died in 1947, DC took very little time reversing a lot of the themes Marston had written about. Writer Robert Kenninger took over and immediately started making changes. Uh, first, The Holiday Girls and Etta Candy almost entirely disappeared from the book. And then Wonder Woman began spending all of her free all of her time with Steve Trevor, and their relationship became much more apparent and concrete than before. Their, their relationship especially took the front seat after Wortham's book came out. In an attempt to distance Wonder Woman from the claims of lesbianism, even though Kenninger showed a lot more explicit relationship between Wonder Woman and Steve, DC Comics preferred their superheroes to not be married, as to keep more story options available. So instead, Steve and Diana would end up in romantic entanglements with each other, one more ridiculous than the next, like Wonder Woman constantly, constantly being jealous of Steve's lack of interest in Diana Prince while being head over heels for her superhero disguise, despite the fact that they were both the same person. And Steve was even worse. He constantly nagged Wonder Woman to marry him. Each time she politely turned him down, saying that she couldn't make a good wife for him, if she was also having to be a superhero, which was a bizarre reversal of Wonder Woman's opinion of marriage in the Golden Age, where she felt that Steve Trevor's wife would interfere with her being a superhero instead. Every time, every time that Wonder Woman turned him down, Steve would respond in jealousy and anger, and sometimes even asking Wonder Woman to do bizarre tasks to prove her love for him. Right here is where we start to see a disconnect between Wonder Woman and modern culture. Back in the Golden Age, Wonder Woman was a reflection of the fact that women had to stand up and be strong if America was going to win the war. 
and she was just as much a symbol of female empowerment as Rosie Riveter was at the time. But after World War II, women were forced out of the workforce and back into their homes, where they once again began to be pigeonholed into domesticity. Wonder Woman unfortunately began to reflect that as well. But later, whenever the next wave of feminism took over and women began to take back their own lives and their own place in society, Wonder Woman was nowhere to be seen. So during the most revolutionary and turbulent time in the 20th century America, Wonder Woman had no part in that context. She was no longer a symbol of anything. She was just a, she was just a zany comic book character. And the series would stay that way for the next about 30 years until the 80s and 90s when writers like writers like George Perez or Gail Simone or Phil Tolley on My Celebrity Cheatless Jimenez would take over and bring a loving, guiding hand to the stories again. Even beyond the stories themselves, one can perceive a total shift in the focus of the Wonder Woman books by looking at the backup features. Alice Marble had begun the Wonder Woman of History feature in Wonder Woman's first issue, and until Kaniger, it had appeared continuously since then. Suddenly, the essays started getting shorter. On average, they had been two to three pages for each, for each woman, and now they sometimes didn't even take up a full page if they appeared at all. Closing in on all sides were new features that revealed a lot about what the publishers were expect, had expected of their audience. Eventually taking the place of Wonder Woman of History were new pieces about the history of jewelry, or wedding practices from around the world, or how to match your clothing with your hair color. <laughs> Most bizarre were the ones that informed readers about superstitions regarding marriage, like it's bad luck for a young lady to sit on a table while talking to their prospective husbands, or if you rip out the number of hair if you rip out a number of hairs equal to your age and then set those hairs on fire, you'll see a vision of your true love. So we went from a bio so we went from a biography of Sacagawea to be sure to change your sheets of your bed whenever you see the first full moon after your wedding or you'll risk bringing bad luck to you and your new husband. They weren't just directing these features for girls, they were also trying to convince girls that they should strive to be perfect ladies so that one day they could achieve the ultimate goal of becoming housewives. Surprisingly though, data collected from the letter columns in the back of the book and compiled by Tim Hanley in his book Wonder Woman Unbound show that majority of readers of Wonder Woman in the 1950s were actually young men. So we can all rest assured that Aggressively gendered advertising and marketing, like not putting a Black Widow figure in an in a Avengers toy set because they're afraid that boys won't buy them, is totally not a new thing. It's always been around, apparently. Ugh. In fact, some of the names in the letter sections actually became big, big shots in the comic industries later, like Marv Wolfman, who is now a comic writing legend, or Michael Uslan, who went on to be the producer in every modern Batman film, from Tim Burton's Batman to the to the Nolan Batmans, and even the most recent Batman v Superman. Huh. I wonder what it would have been like if these books had actually been good, and he had been influenced more by the Wonder Woman comics than the Batman comics. I wonder what a Christopher Nolan's Wonder Woman would sound like. Tell me where she is. What? What? Where did they take Anna Candy? Tell me. I don't know. I don't know. I swear to God. Swear to Hera. Why are you doing this?
Cause I'm the goddamn Wonder Woman. Whoa, well, that was random. Sorry about that. Had an out-of-genre experience. Anyway, so under the CCA, gruesome horror comics and sexy romance books couldn't continue as they had before, and most of those titles went under. The newly rebranded DC Comics turned back to their old genre, superheroes. So like we talked about in our last episode, rather than making up new superheroes, DC decided to reinvent their existing brands. Almost all of the superheroes were reimagined as totally new characters. Of course, Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman had still been published continuously, so they stayed mostly the same, though they did get some slightly altered retellings on their origin. And of course, Kaniger's new Wonder Woman origin is why I drink. Alright, let me point out that this story origin doesn't overwrite the origin we talked about in the Golden Age before on the show. That story still happened on Earth 2, which still exists. This story happens on the newly formed Earth 1 for the Silver Age superheroes. So let's begin Wonder Woman Volume 1, Issue 105. So the Silver Age Wonder Woman's origin story starts centuries ago when the Amazons still lived in man's world. Baby Diana is visited by four godly guests one day in her crib. So, we already have a red flag here. Wonder Woman's origin story begins when she's a baby, unlike unlike where we followed her story before from the moment Hippolyta formed her from clay. So, what's the story of Wonder Woman's birth here? Well, in another issue, Kenninger explains that Wonder Woman in the Silver Age was not formed from clay, but actually had a father and was born naturally from Hippolyta. In issue 152 of Wonder Woman, Hippolyta and a teenage Diana are watching something called Father-Daughter Day that's happening in Man's World on the Magic Mirror. Hippolyta consoles a saddened Diana by telling her the story of her father, who was a sailor lost at sea. And you guys were angry about the New 52 origin for Wonder Woman. At least in that one, her father has something to do with the storyline. More or less. More on that later. Back to the story. So four gods appear to Diana in her nursery to bless her. Aphrodite appears and blesses the child with beauty. Athena appears and grants the child with all the wisdom of the planets, whatever that means. Hermes appears and doesn't so much grant Diana speed as he notices her agility when she catches his helmet when it falls off. Lastly, uh, the last god to appear to bless Diana is Hercules. Yes, that Hercules. He grants the child strength like his own. See, it's one thing that half of Wonder Woman's powers in the Silver Age came from male gods, but Hercules especially represents all that's wrong with male aggression in the Amazon's history. In fact, in Kaniger's later stories, Hercules visits Paradise Island multiple times to engage in all kinds of romantic comedy hijinks with Hippolyta, it's just so wrong. Anyway, we jump ahead years later where Diana is a little girl, and Hippolyta sits in her throne room weeping, along with all the other Amazons, who are also crying. You see, all the Amazon men were killed in a war. So in this version, not only were there Amazon men, but, all, but the men were the ones who went to war. You must be brave, Diana. As befitting a princess. 
Yes, mother. I will. So the Amazons decide that without their men, they are defenseless, and they conspire to flee from man's world forever and escape what they call these horrible wars. Ah! Yeah. The Amazons plan to build a gigantic boat the next morning to take them away from man's world. But that night, Hippolyta awakens to find that she cannot find young Princess Diana. A search party is formed. But the women began to panic when they hear strange sounds coming from the beach. Noises! At the beach! Perhaps invaders are landing! Hurry, hurry! Perhaps they've already taken little Diana! They head to the beach to find that Diana has used her super speed to build a ship large enough for all the Amazons to fit in. Why, she is a wonder girl! The next morning they set sail, pointing their ship in just a random direction. And as they head out to sea, it's like Kanagurs just starts rolling a d20 on a random encounter chart. First, they hit a gigantic whirlpool, which Diana is able to save them from using Hercules' gift of strength. Next, the Amazons sail between two snowy peaks jutting out of the water, when suddenly, fire. The boat's on fire. The water's on fire. Everything's on fire. The whole fandom is on fire. Wonder Woman saves them with, a, with Athena's quick thinking and Hermes' speed by rushing up the mountain, making a huge snowball on top of the snowy peak, and dropping onto the ship to put out the flames. It also puts out the water, but the water's burning, and the snowball's just water. Anyway. Uh, it's like Kanninger wasn't even trying to put out something good. You'd almost think that he was just writing comics for money. Oh, by the way, Kenninger also wrote a book. It's literally called Writing Comics for Money. Next, the ship sails through a random fog of poisonous fumes, which Diana is able to resist and steer the ship free from. The only gift she hasn't used yet is Aphrodite, so I guess she's able to resist the poison fumes with her gift of beauty? Anyway... They make it to an island where Athena appears on the beach to greet them. Diana builds, an, builds the Amazons a city with, using her superpowers, and they live there in peace. Diana becomes strong enough to swim up waterfalls and quick enough to snatch a feather from a giant rock bird, and grown wise in her lessons from the other Amazons, such as learning to speak caveman. Well, she does use that skill later on in the next story in the book where she and Steve... Trevor crash land in the not Marvel Savage Land from X-Men. Anyway, so the comic ends with Diana saving the Amazons from a whale. N nothing to do with her origin story. Kanninger just ends it like that. We get a slightly more familiar story a few issues earlier in issue 98, titled The Million Dollar Penny. This story takes place long after the Amazons have arrived on their island. Hippolyta is told by Athena in a dream to send an Amazon to man's world to fight crime and injustice. This new continuity takes place in the modern age of the 50s, so there's no mention of World War II. So apparently, Athena just thought of this on a whim, like, this is a good time to send an Amazon to man's world. Anyway, Hippolyta holds the familiar contest of the Amazons. Unlike before, every Amazon has to wear a mask of Diana's face to make sure the queen doesn't show favoritism. 
Now, when I read this, I thought the masks were going to look like those old classic uh, plastic Halloween masks from the 70s, you know? It's like just literally the cartoon character's face. But instead, every Amazon's... But somehow through Amazon cosplay skills, every Amazon just looks exactly like Diana, which is somehow creepier. <laughs> Diana, of course, wins the contest, which includes tasks like a tug-of-war and log-rolling, and is given a sacred task by the queen. She is told to take a penny to man's world, which she must turn into a million dollars. Why do the Amazons need a million American dollars? I don't know. Where did the, where did the Amazons get an American penny? We don't know that. We don't get to know. Because Steve Trevor promptly shows up in a very convenient plane explosion above the island. To save Steve, Diana uses her strength to leap high into the air, where she discovers that she can manipulate air currents, giving her the ability to fly for the first time in the character's existence. Diana flies Steve back to Man's World, where she finds out that an American city is taking bids for someone to build a new bridge for them. They're offering a million dollars for the job. Wonder Woman uses her amazing strength to stretch that penny out and shape it into a bridge, winning the million dollars and completing her trial. What makes this story even worse is that apparently Kaniger had written the same story years earlier in Wonder Woman number 59, and he just recycled it as her origin. Alright, let's wrap this up. So we get a few more additions to the Wonder Woman mythos during this age. Uh, the idea that Wonder Woman was blessed with gifts at birth by assemblage of gods will reappear in the George Perez story, as well as her ability to fly. Another element we get is the first real appearance of a Wonder Girl. These flashback stories chronicle the adventures of Wonder Girl as she grows up the, as the only young person on Paradise Island. Sometimes she goes on fantastic adventures, but most of the time she just spends her day stuck in love triangles between characters like Merboy and Bird Boy. Later on in Kaniger's run, Wonder Girl and Wonder Woman will, time, will travel through time to meet up with each other for adventures, sometimes even teaming up with an even earlier incarnation of Diana called Wonder Tot. Diana's mom even comes along for adventure or two, calling herself Wonder Queen. And the time-traveling Wonder Girl will later split into two different characters like an amoeba. In Brave and the Bold number 54, when writer Bob Haney mistook her for Wonder Woman's sidekick and casts her in his new superhero team, the Teen Titans. This character eventually will become Donna Troy, who we are not going to say anything more about because Donna's story is so bizarre that she's going to have her own episode. Or maybe two. Alright guys, so that's the Silver Age. Um, in the next few weeks, I'll try to have the second half of Alice Marble's Wonder Woman history, Wonder Woman of history story, and then next month you'll get to hear me get really, really annoyed when we talk about the '70s, and we'll get to learn about how Stan Lee ruined Wonder Woman. This is Matt for Radio Free Themyscira signing off, and hoping that the wisdom of the planets will follow you always. Thank you.